0: Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for giving us your word. We pray that as we reflect on this chapter in Deuteronomy today, that we might understand what it says, that we may know you better and respond appropriately to you, given who you are and what you have done for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jealousy can be an ugly, ugly thing when we are angry with people because they've got what we want, when we resent people because they've got what we want, that is really just greed, isn't it? Uh, It's selfishness. We are failing to love those other people, failing to want what is best for them. Jealousy is a failure of contentment in our own life. It's a failure of gratitude. Our jealousy is, generally speaking, ugly and sinful let me tell you about a situation this happened a few years ago Uh, there was a couple fairly new christians they started coming to our church Uh, they'd been living together and after a while of coming to our church they decided to get married Uh, i did the wedding but then uh, just within a year of the wedding uh, the wife started an affair with a bloke at her work i remember the husband came and he spoke to me and he said i feel so angry i am her husband she should not be sleeping with this other bloke she said, he said to me, he said, Jeff, I know jealousy is a sin, but I feel so jealous. She is my wife, she should be loyal to me. I thought about it for a while, but then he said, Mate, I don't think your jealousy is a sin at all. I think in this case, you are right to be jealous. She is your wife, and she ought to be yours alone. I think jealousy is the godly Christian response to this disloyalty. Most of the time, for us, vast majority of the time for us, our jealousy is ugly and sinful. But you see, there are situations where it's right, where it's appropriate, particularly in the context of an exclusive relationship like marriage. In an exclusive relationship where it's agreed that it will be exclusive, like a covenant or a promise, Uh, in an exclusive relationship, it is right to be jealous for the other person's loyalty. Well, today we continue our series in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, You may remember from last week, Israel are right on the edge of the promised land, poised to cross the Jordan River and come into the land 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, after 400 years of waiting for God to keep his promise, finally we are here on the edge of the promised land and Moses is speaking. Do you remember this is like a transcript of three sermons by Moses? So last week and this week is the first sermon and then uh, the second sermon is much longer and then there's a shorter sermon at the end. So Moses is speaking, he knows that he can't go with them into the promised land and so he's calling on them to trust God, to, to obey his law so that they... this this next generation can go into the land and live rightly as God's people. But the thing is this, Israel are not going to obey God's law unless they know and love God Himself. Israel are not going to obey all of the laws that Moses is going to give them in the next sermon at great, great length. They're not going to obey all the laws that God has given unless they are loyal to the God who gave the laws. And so, in this last part of his first sermon, before he goes on to detail all the laws, Moses calls on Israel to be loyal, to be loyal to God. He starts off by reminding them of something terrible, uh, something that happened uh, just when they were back in the land of Moab. Some of the Israelites had started worshipping a different God, the God of Moab, the so-called Baal of Peor. And Moses reminds them what happened. He says, God had no mercy. On the idolaters they ended up dead in the desert chapter 4 and verse 3 have a look with me Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 3 you saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor the Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor but all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today So this event in their history makes it perfectly clear the way God feels. He demands Israel's loyalty. Moses then goes on to give another reason why Israel should be loyal to God, why they should follow His laws. He says, it's so you will be wise. He says, if you follow God's law, even foreign nations will see how wise you are. They are excellent laws. They should be followed. And if you follow them, you will fulfill your destiny promised to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. Verse 5, see, I have taught you decrees and laws that the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Moses goes on to tell the Israelites that they mustn't forget who God is and what he has done for them. They need to pass on what they know of God to future generations and in particular they need to remember one thing. God does not have a physical form. You can't shrink him down into some kind of an image, into some kind of a pet that you can control or something like that. No, no, no. When when God appeared to Israel at Mount Sinai, they heard a voice, but they didn't see a form that they could contain. Verse 9. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words, so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens, with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard... The sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Did you see it? The God who saved Israel, the God who gave them his law, has no physical form. And so he goes on to say, you mustn't try to represent him in some sort of a physical form. You mustn't try to squeeze him into into some image that you can understand, uh, shrink him down into something that you can control. And also, you certainly mustn't worship anything else, anything that he has made or or any other so-called God. Worship the invisible God. Don't try to make him into a form. Don't try to worship anything else. Either of these would be disloyal to God. And Moses goes on to say this. God is jealous for their loyalty. Moses reminds Israel God has made a covenant with them. Uh, They're they're in an exclusive relationship with God, like a marriage, and like a husband, God is jealous for his people's loyalty. Verse 15, 15. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, Watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. Don't make God into an image. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them. And worshipping things the Lord your God is apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. And Moses says, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. I will die in this land I will not cross the Jordan. But you, you're about to cross over and take possession of that good land. So be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is jealous for their loyalty. And Moses goes on to say, what will happen if they are disloyal to God? God says that he will destroy them. Uh, He is merciful. He will forgive them. He won't abandon them if they repent. But he will not tolerate disloyal idolatry. Verse 25. After you've had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, If you then do become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. Uh, Next thing, Moses, um, he he reminds Israel of how unique God is. And and what he does, he asks all these rhetorical questions. you know what a rhetorical question is? It's a question that you ask where you don't expect an answer, but the answer to all the questions is no. He he, he says, who? What other God is there who's rescued people like this? Answer, none. What other God is there who's done this kind of thing? Answer, none. There is no other God. There is no other God who has done what God has done for you in rescuing you out of Egypt and giving you this good law. There's no other God like that. Why? Because there is no other God. Now there is a fundamental problem with worshipping any other God than God. There is no such thing. You're worshipping a lie. God alone is God. He alone is worthy of their worship and of their loyalty. Verse 32. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created man on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or or has anything like it ever been heard of? No. No. Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? No. Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? No. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God Besides him, there is no other. From heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words from out of the fire. Because he loved your forefathers and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land, to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. So... Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven and above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I'm giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. And that's the end of, of Moses' first sermon in, uh, in this book of Deuteronomy. Now, the passage ends with the, Moses attending to a bit of housekeeping. He sets up some cities of refuge in the, the part of the promised land on the east of the Jordan that they've already conquered. But that's, that's the first sermon. Uh, can you see what's here then in this section? Moses wants Israel to obey the laws that he's giving them, the law particularly that he's about to give them in the second sermon. He wants them to obey the laws, but if they're going to obey God's law, they need something more basic than that. If they're going to obey God's law, they need to be loyal, for to, loyal to the God who has given the law. They mustn't try to shrink him down into an image who they can control and they can boss around. They mustn't worship any other idols, or so-called gods. They need to be loyal to God. And we've seen four good reasons, I think, in this passage, haven't we? Why should they be loyal to God? One, because He's the one and only true God. He is the only God. Two, because He's the God who has saved them. Three, because He's the God who has entered into covenant with them. And four, because God is jealous for their loyalty. Friends, as we saw last week from the book of Deuteronomy, the God of Deuteronomy is our God. He's the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the New Testament is just as clear about this as the Old. All of these reasons here in Deuteronomy why Israel should be loyal to God, they still all apply to us. Let me show you there on your outline, on the right-hand side, can you see all those New Testament verses? Uh, I want to show you how we are theologically in a very similar situation to Israel. Uh, So, they needed to be loyal to God. Why first? Because God is the one and only true God. Well, that's still true, isn't it? There on your outline from Romans, from the New Testament. There is only one God. Or or from 1 Corinthians. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Hasn't changed. God is still the one and only God. And, And, of course, as Christians... God has saved us, hasn't he? He hasn't saved us out of Egypt like he saved Israel out of Egypt. He's saved us from, from the ultimate slavery, slavery to sin and death and the devil. God has rescued us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are saved people. From 1 Corinthians, the next passage there. Uh, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you're a Christian, you're a saved, a rescued person. And if you are a Christian, then like with Israel, God has entered into a covenant with you. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, the next verse on your outline. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he's died as a ransom to set them free. We saved Christians are in covenant with God And you know, God hasn't changed. Like with Israel, God is jealous for our loyalty. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to some Christians who've been attending idol feasts. And he writes this, he writes, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? or in 2 Corinthians he uses the image of of marriage to describe it when they're going off after false teaching Paul writes i am jealous for you with a godly jealousy i promised you to one husband to christ so that i might present you as a pure virgin to him do you see the point we are theologically in a very similar situation to israel here in Deuteronomy there is still only one god If you are a Christian, this God has saved you. He has brought you into an exclusive covenant with Himself, and God is jealous for your loyalty. God is jealous for your loyalty. Have you ever heard someone described as a loyal Christian? Seems like a bit of an old fashioned term, doesn't it? A loyal Christian. I reckon it's time to bring it back. Uh, could, could, could you describe yourself as a loyal Christian? Do, do you identify yourself with God? D- does everybody know you're on God's team? Are, are you known as a Christian? Do, do you stick up for God when he's being criticized? Do you, do you speak up for him because he's, you're on his side? Are you a loyal Christian? I mean, we're obviously disloyal when we're, like Peter and our kids talk, when, when we're too scared to be known as Christians, when we, uh, when we deny Christ, but when we won't speak up for God. But I reckon here in this passage there are some other aspects to loyalty that perhaps, perhaps we don't always think of quite so easily. I, I reckon there are at least three very significant ways here in this passage in Deuteronomy that we need to express our loyalty to God. Three, three ideas on what it will mean to be a loyal Christian, first, for Israel to be loyal to God, it meant it meant no making God into an image, no images to represent God. Now, in our context, uh, we're probably not uh, tempted to make physical images of God. I've never seen anybody at Chatswood make a big, you know, cow or something and say this is the God who carried me out of sin and death, uh, like the Israelites did. I, I don't think we're going to be too worried about physical images, but still, we've got to be so careful. Let me give you an example. Uh, last week, last week my dad um, took my son out for the day. My son had a lovely time. My dad is a very nice man. Uh, but my dad is not a Christian. He's not relying on Jesus. Um, that night, after I put all the kids to bed, I was kind of crashed in front of the TV late on a Saturday night. Uh, but then in the middle of the night, my son comes out and he's bawling his eyes out, crying tears of, of, of tears lots of tears he came out to me bawling and i said what's wrong what's wrong and he said i don't want opa that's my dad i don't want opa to go to hell he said why would god send opa to hell in fact why would god send anyone to hell why would he make all those millions of people only to send them to hell Tough question, when you crashed in front of the TV late on a Saturday night. <laughs> and, and as I thought about what to say, I was struck by how easy it would be to, to shrink God down into an image, to, to, to shrink him into a God of my making, who I'm comfortable with, a God who does things the way I think he should do them. So I could have said, uh, I'm sure God will have mercy on everyone. Everyone, all is going to be fine. Go back to bed. That wouldn't be true. It wouldn't be biblical. But it's the image of how I'd like God to be an innocuous sort of a God, even tempered God, a safe sort of a God. And because God isn't like that, well, it's easy to resent Him. Who is this God who thinks that he can send people to hell? I don't even like a God like that. I would love to be able to see God. I would love to be able to understand God. I'd love to be able to control God, have him be the kind of God who I would like him to be. I would love to have God as an image in my making. And so I find it tempting. Tempting to reshape him into an image or or attempting to resent him for not being in the image I think he should be in but how will a loyal Christian respond as usual it's taken me about about a week to think up the right answer I wasn't too good in front of the tv I don't think but but I've thought about it for the last week or so and I reckon the loyal answer to my son's question is something like this God is very big and very powerful the god who made the entire universe we on the other hand are very small and very ignorant and so we cannot understand now everything about god and his ways but there are some things we do know We know that God came in the person of Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin and so we know that he is holy and just and righteous and will do what is good and perfect and right and we know that he is full of love and mercy at the cost of the death of his own son. I don't know why God would create people whom he will send to hell but I know enough about God to believe this. He is good. He is good and we will see it. He is worthy of our love He is worthy of our trust. Do do, do you see how that's a loyal response? It doesn't try to shrink God into an image that suits us. It doesn't resent God for not being the God we think He should be. Instead, we acknowledge that He is bigger, He is wiser, He made the universe, He made us, and and little ignorant people shouldn't tell big, powerful people how to do things. Pots shouldn't tell potters how to do pottery. And then... When we're faced with stuff that concerns us, that we can't understand, that we're not even sure if we like, well, what we do then is we give God the benefit of the doubt, so to speak. We let him be God, let him sort it out, and what we do is trust him and love him, even when we can't see or understand. That's the first aspect of being loyal, not shrinking God down into an image just briefly, the last couple of ways that Israel had to be faithful. Uh, Israel had to be, secondly, faithful um, by worshipping and obeying only God, no idols, no, no other gods, no bowing down to suns or moons or anything like that. Uh, for Israel, the temptation, of course, was to worship the false gods of the, and the idols of the nations around them. And that can still be a temptation for many of us, can't it? Uh, particularly if you're from an Asian culture. Particularly if your family are not Christian, they're still doing all the all the idol thing with the ancestors and so on. You've got to think very carefully about it. I know it's perceived as disrespectful, but you've got to be think, thinking very carefully about the ceremonies that your family do for ancestors and so on, and make sure that however you respond to it, you're not worshiping idols. Of course, as the New Testament reminds us, there's more to idolatry than the idols of other religions. Anything can become an idol. Uh, This is where Tim Keller's book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, is so piercing and so helpful. I really encourage you to read it. I've put a long quote uh, from Counterfeit Gods on your outline there so you can read it and ponder it. I recommend the book. But let me just read the section in bold there, the first section. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. always tempting to make good things into ultimate things, isn't it? To to let them displace God from being number one. Uh, I notice in my bathroom there are um, some briefing magazines and some guitar magazines. The guitar magazines are looking very frayed and the briefings are looking untouched. It's very easy to Turn good stuff into ultimate stuff and seek your security and comfort and peace and joy from it instead of from God. But a loyal Christian will be constantly identifying idolatry and constantly turning away from it. A Christian is someone who turns from idols to the living and true God. No images, no idols. Third aspect, third aspect of loyalty for Israel was this. And you see this in the flow of Deuteronomy. It, it, is, it was loyalty to God that was supposed to motivate their obedience to his law. That's that's why in this first sermon you don't get hundreds of laws, you get this basic thing about being loyal to God and then in the second sermon you get the hundreds of laws because Moses is teaching them that the, the, the reason they should be obeying all of the laws is out of loyalty to God himself, out of a heart that loves God, that says, God, you are right, you are good, your ways are better than mine, you're smarter than me, I should love you, I should obey all these laws because you know better. And I'm on your team. I, mean, I guess there are lots of reasons why we obey God and not all of them are so good, are they? Sometimes it's just out of kind of resentful duty or blind fear. Sometimes we obey God to impress other people and look godly. Of course, it's always tempting to obey externally, isn't it? And, and, and not from your heart. It's not going to be like that for a loyal Christian. A loyal Christian will actually, genuinely love God. A a loyal Christian will be on God's side, assuming that God is right, agreeing that his ways are good. A loyal Christian, therefore, will serve God from a, a, a willing heart. Friends, friends, where does your loyalty lie? Are you a loyal Christian? Do you obey him from a willing heart, believing that he's right? Or have you shrunk God into an image or or has some idol taken first place in your heart? Friends, I hope you are a, a loyal Christian. I think there are very good reasons here in Deuteronomy, don't you? Here's how it is. There is only one true God. In Christ, this God has saved you and entered into covenant with you and he is jealous for your loyalty. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you because you are the one and only true God and because in the Lord Jesus Christ you have saved us and brought us into covenant with yourself. We thank you so much for your forgiveness. We thank you that we are your people we thank you that you love us and we pray heavenly father that you would help us to be loyal help us to believe you as you are and not shrink you down help us to worship only you help us to love and obey you from a willing heart because you deserve all our loyalty and love so we pray that you would help us in jesus name amen